Section 9 of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume 3, Chapter 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume 3, Chapter 15, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Section 9. Not only was the appointment of Lausanne in itself a bad appointment, but in order that one man might fill a post for which he was unfit, it was necessary to remove two men from posts for which they were eminently fit. Immoral and hard-hearted as Rosen and Aviot were, Rosen was a skilful captain, and Aviot was a skilful politician. Though it is not probable that they would have been able to avert the doom of Ireland, it is probable that they might have been able to protract the contest, and it was evidently for the interest of France that the contest should be protracted. But it would have been an affront to the old general to put him under the orders of Lazun, and between the ambassador and Lazun there was such an enmity that they could not be expected to act cordially together. Both Rosen and Aviot, therefore, were, with many soothing assurances of royal approbation and favor, recalled to France. They sailed from Cork early in the spring by the fleet which had conveyed Lazun thither, Lazun had no sooner landed than he found that, though he had been long expected, nothing had been prepared for his reception. No lodgings had been provided for his men, no place of security for his stores, no horses, no carriages. His troops had to undergo the hardships of a long march through a desert before they arrived at Dublin. At Dublin, indeed, they found tolerable accommodation. They were billeted on Protestants, lived at free quarter, had plenty of bread, and threepence a day. Lazun was appointed commander-in-chief of the Irish army, and took up his residence in the castle. His salary was the same with that of the Lord Lieutenant, eight thousand Jacobuses, equivalent to ten thousand pounds sterling a year. This sum James offered to pay, not in the brass which bore his own effigy, but in French gold. But Lazun, among whose faults avarice had no place, refused to fill his own coffers from an almost empty treasury. On him and on the Frenchmen who accompanied him, the misery of the Irish people and the imbecility of the Irish government produced an effect which they found it difficult to describe. Lazun wrote to Lavoie that the court and the whole kingdom were in a state not to be imagined by a person who had always lived in well-governed countries. It was, he said, a chaos, such as he had read of in the book of Genesis. The whole business of all the public functionaries was to quarrel with each other, and to plunder the government and the people. After he had been about a month at the castle, he declared that he would not go through such another month for all the world. His ablest officers confirmed his testimony. One of them, indeed, was so unjust as to represent the people of Ireland not merely as ignorant and idle, which they were, but as hopelessly stupid and unfeeling, which they assuredly were not. The English policy, he said, had so completely brutalized them that they could hardly be called human beings. They were insensible to praise and blame, to promises and threats, and yet it was pity of them, for they were physically the finest race of men in the world. By this time Schomberg had opened the campaign auspiciously. He had with little difficulty taken Charlemont, the last important fastness which the Irish occupied in Ulster. But the great work of reconquering the three southern provinces of the island he deferred till William should arrive. William, meanwhile, was busied in making arrangements for the government and defense of England during his absence. He well knew that the Jacobites were on the alert. They had not till very lately been an united and organized faction. 
There had been, to use Melfort's phrase, numerous gangs, which were all in communication with James at Dublin Castle, or with Mary of Modena at St. Germain, but which had no connection with each other and were unwilling to trust each other. But since it had been known that the usurper was about to cross the sea, and that his scepter would be left in a female hand, these gangs had been drawing close together, and had begun to form one extensive confederacy. Clarendon, who had refused the oaths, and Aylesbury, who had dishonestly taken them, were among the chief traitors. Dartmouth, though he had sworn allegiance to the sovereigns who were in possession, was one of their most active enemies, and undertook what may be called the maritime department of the plot. His mind was constantly occupied by schemes, disgraceful to an English seaman, for the destruction of the English fleet and arsenals. He was in close communication with some naval officers, who, though they served the new government, served it sullenly and with half a heart, and he flattered himself that by promising these men ample rewards, and by artfully inflaming the jealous animosity with which they regarded the Dutch flag, he should prevail on them to desert and to carry their ships into some French or Irish port. The conduct of Penn was scarcely less scandalous. He was a zealous and busy Jacobite, and his new way of life was even more unfavorable than his late way of life had been to moral purity. It was hardly possible to be at once a consistent Quaker and a courtier, but it was utterly impossible to be at once a consistent Quaker and a conspirator. It is melancholy to relate that Penn, while professing to consider even defensive war as sinful, did everything in his power to bring a foreign army into the heart of his own country. He wrote to inform James that the adherents of the Prince of Orange dreaded nothing so much as an appeal to the sword, and that if England were now invaded from France or from Ireland, the number of royalists would appear to be greater than ever. Aviot thought this letter so important that he sent a translation of it to Louis. A good effect, the shrewd ambassador wrote, had been produced, by this and similar communications, on the mind of King James. His Majesty was at last convinced that he could recover his dominions only sword in hand. It is a curious fact that it should have been reserved for the great preacher of peace to produce this conviction in the mind of the old tyrant. Penn's proceedings had not escaped the observation of the government. Warrants had been out against him, and he had been taken into custody, but the evidence against him had not been such as would support a charge of high treason. He had, as with all his faults he deserved to have, many friends in every party. He therefore soon regained his liberty and returned to his plots. But the chief conspirator was Richard Graham, Viscount Preston, who had in the late reign been Secretary of State. Though a peer in Scotland, he was only a baronet in England. He had, indeed, received from St. Germain an English patent of nobility, but the patent bore a date posterior to that flight which the Convention had pronounced an abdication. The Lords had, therefore, not only refused to admit him to a share of their privileges, but had sent him to prison for presuming to call himself one of their order. He had, however, by humbling himself, and by withdrawing his claim, obtained his liberty, though the submissive language which he had condescended to use on this occasion did not indicate a spirit prepared for martyrdom, he was regarded by his party, and by the world in general, as a man of courage and honour. He still retained the seals of his office, and was still considered by the adherents of indefeasible hereditary right as the real Secretary of State. He was in high favour with Lewis, at whose court he had formerly resided, and he had, since the Revolution, been entrusted by the French government with considerable sums of money for political purposes. While Preston was consulting in the capital with the other heads of the faction, 
the rustic Jacobites were laying in arms, holding musters, and forming themselves into companies, troops, and regiments. There were alarming symptoms in Worcestershire. In Lancashire many gentlemen had received commissions signed by James, called themselves colonels and captains, and made out long lists of non-commissioned officers and privates. Letters from Yorkshire brought news that large bodies of men, who seemed to have met for no good purpose, had been seen on the moors near Knaresborough. Letters from Newcastle gave an account of a great match at football which had been played in Northumberland, and was suspected to have been a pretext for a gathering of the disaffected. In the crowd, it was said, were a hundred and fifty horsemen well mounted and armed, of whom many were papists. Meantime packets of letters full of treason were constantly passing and repassing between Kent and Picardy, and between Wales and Ireland. Some of the messengers were honest fanatics, but others were mere mercenaries, and trafficked in the secrets of which they were the bearers. Of these double traitors the most remarkable was William Fuller. This man has himself told us that, while he was very young, he fell in with a pamphlet, which contained an account of the flatigious life and horrible death of Dangerfield. The boy's imagination was set on fire. He devoured the book, he almost got it by heart, and he was soon seized, and ever after haunted, by a strange presentiment that his fate would resemble that of the wretched adventurer whose history he had so eagerly read. It might have been supposed that the prospect of dying in Newgate, with a back flayed and an eye knocked out, would not have seemed very attractive. But experience proves that there are some distempered minds for which notoriety, even when accompanied with pain and shame, has an irresistible fascination." Animated by this loathsome ambition, Fuller equalled, and perhaps surpassed, his model. He was bred a Roman Catholic, and was page to Lady Melfort, when Lady Melfort shone at Whitehall as one of the loveliest women in the train of Mary of Modena. After the Revolution he followed his mistress to France, was repeatedly employed in delicate and perilous commissions, and was thought, at Saint-Germain, to be a devoted servant of the House of Stuart. In truth, however, he had, in one of his journeys to London, sold himself to the new government, and had abjured the faith in which he had been brought up. The honour, if it is to be so called, of turning him from a worthless papist into a worthless Protestant he ascribed, with characteristic impudence, to the lucid reasoning and blameless life of Tillotson. In the spring of 1690 Mary of Modena wished to send to her correspondence in London some highly important dispatches. As these dispatches were too bulky to be concealed in the clothes of a single messenger, it was necessary to employ two confidential persons. Fuller was one. The other was a zealous young Jacobite called Crone. Before they set out, they received full instructions from the Queen herself. Not a scrap of paper was to be detected about them by an ordinary search, but their buttons contained letters written in invisible ink. The pair proceeded to Calais. The governor of that town furnished them with a boat, which, under cover of the night, set them on the low marshy coast of Kent, near the lighthouse of Dungeness. They walked to a farmhouse, procured horses, and took different roads to London. Fuller hastened to the palace at Kensington, and delivered the documents with which he was charged into the king's hand. The first letter which William unrolled seemed to contain only florid compliments, but a pan of charcoal was lighted, a liquor well known to the diplomatists of that age was applied to the paper, an unsavory steam filled the closet, and lines full of grave meaning began to appear. The first thing to be done was to secure Crone. He had unfortunately had time to deliver his letters before he was caught, 
but a snare was laid for him into which he easily fell. In truth, the sincere Jacobites were generally wretched plotters. There was among them an unusually large proportion of sots, braggarts, and babblers, and Crone was one of these. Had he been wise, he would have shunned places of public resort, kept strict guard over his lips, and stinted himself to one bottle at a meal. He was found by the messengers of the government at a tavern-table in Gracechurch Street, swallowing bumpers to the health of King James, and ranting about the coming restoration, the French fleet, and the thousands of honest Englishmen who were awaiting the signal to rise in arms for their rightful sovereign. He was carried to the secretary's office at Whitehall. He at first seemed to be confident and at his ease, but when Fuller appeared, among the bystanders at liberty, and in fashionable garb, with a sword, the prisoner's courage fell, and he was scarcely able to articulate. The news that Fuller had turned King's evidence, that Crone had been arrested, and that important letters from Saint-Germain were in the hands of William, flew fast through London, and spread dismay among all who were conscious of guilt. It was true that the testimony of one witness, even if that witness had been more respectable than Fuller, was not legally sufficient to convict any person of high treason. But Fuller had so managed matters that several witnesses could be produced to corroborate his evidence against Crone, and if Crone, under the strong terror of death, should imitate Fuller's example, the heads of all the chiefs of the conspiracy would be at the mercy of the government. The spirits of the Jacobites rose, however, when it was known that Crone, though repeatedly interrogated by those who had him in their power, and though assured that nothing but a frank confession could save his life, had resolutely continued silent. What effect a verdict of guilty, and the near prospect of the gallows might produce on him remained to be seen. His accomplices were by no means willing that his fortitude should be tried by so severe a test. They therefore employed numerous artifices, legal and illegal, to avert a conviction. A woman named Clifford, with whom he had lodged, and who was one of the most active and cunning agents of the Jacobite faction, was entrusted with the duty of keeping him steady to the cause, and of rendering to him services from which scrupulous or timid agents might have shrunk. When the dreaded day came, Fuller was too ill to appear in the witness-box, and the trial was consequently postponed. He asserted that his malady was not natural, that a noxious drug had been administered to him in a dish of porridge, that his nails were discolored, that his hair came off, and that able physicians pronounced him poisoned. But such stories, even when they rest on authority much better than that of Fuller, ought to be received with great distrust. While Crone was awaiting his trial, another agent of the court of Saint-Germain, named Tempest, was seized on the road between Dover and London, and was found to be the bearer of numerous letters addressed to malcontents in England. Every day it became more plain that the state was surrounded by dangers, and yet it was absolutely necessary that, at this conjuncture, the able and resolute chief of the state should quit his post. William, with painful anxiety, such as he alone was able to conceal under an appearance of stoical serenity, prepared to take his departure. Mary was in agonies of grief, and her distress affected him more than was imagined by those who judged of his heart by his demeanour. He knew, too, that he was about to leave her surrounded by difficulties, with which her habits had not qualified her to contend. She would be in constant need of wise and upright counsel, and where was such counsel to be found? There were, indeed, among his servants many able men, and a few virtuous men. But even when he was present, their political and personal animosities had too often made both their abilities and their virtues useless to him. 
what chance was there that the gentle Mary would be able to restrain that party spirit, and that emulation which had been but very imperfectly kept in order by her resolute and politic lord? If the interior cabinet which was to assist the Queen were composed exclusively either of Whigs or of Tories, half the nation would be disgusted. Yet if Whigs and Tories were mixed, it was certain that there would be constant dissension. Such was William's situation that he had only a choice of evils. End of section 9